year, but uh, we, we built, I was trying to build a foundation. And, and John 15 is part of the foundation where we learn to live out of the indwelling life of God. And um, then yesterday, I, I wanted to talk to you some more in, about what it means to bear the image. And we sing this song, but really we need to sing it as uh, a promise more than uh, it is a request, because God, we saw yesterday, he promised that, that he has predestined us to be conformed to his image. And so everything that we're looking at is about how do I allow him to convey his image. Then last night I took you to Ephesians and talked about what it means to walk worthy of this calling, this vocation. And it doesn't matter what you do for a living, you have a vocation, a calling from God to love him and to love people. And so this morning I'm going to talk about... uh, our calling as a husband. Now, I know that some of you are not married. 16 is too young. Amen. How old are you, Dalton? 21. Too young. <laughs> At least that's what I tell my girls, you know. Uh, it's too young, way too young. When did you get married, Dad? 22. Like, uh, but uh, at 26, I'm thinking, get married. <laughs> you know, <laughs> too old. Um, <clears throat> But you, you, you say, well, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do if we learn these principles. Um, and um, kind of like a disclaimer, you know, uh, Vanessa and I have, uh, we, we started basing out of the States um, well, shortly after we were here last year. We had to make some decisions and, and um, some of our, you know, our kids were going through some tough times and not that they were bad, they were just having a hard time and we wanted to be closer to them. So we started basing on the States and kind of going back and forth to India and Vietnam. And we helped uh, to establish a church. And uh, we wanted to do it different, um, which is probably a shock to you that I would want to do something different. But um, the people who know me know that uh, that's, that's the way it is. But we're trying to get people who reach unchurched people. So as we're getting people in, I, I came to the realization as I was talking with our leadership team that about 80% of the people in our congregation, the people who were coming to our meetings, have been divorced. I, I was shocked. But I think about 80%. Now, some of them had been divorced and remarried. And, and um, you know, if you didn't know, they didn't share their history with you, you would have never known. I mean, they have healthy relationships. And when I'm talking about this, I, I'm not talking about this to shame anybody. If you're been divorced and remarried, that's not what this is about. I'm just going to lay out what the scripture says about our calling as husbands. So if you're not married, I imagine that one day you would like to be married. These are foundational tools. Those of us who are married, uh, that reminds us of some very important truths that I think we just neglect. And the longer you're married, the, the more readily you may neglect them. Because we get into these little ruts in life. So let's begin in Mark chapter 10. And uh, let's look at verse 6 through 9. And we're going to go and dig out some, some truths from the scripture. But we're going to start there. Uh, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Father, I I just thank you that your word is true, that it's always relevant, that Culture changes, circumstances changes, perspectives in the world change, but your word never changes. Your will, your purpose never changes. And I I pray that you would just speak through me and uh, minister to these men and uh, convict us if that's what we need. Remind us, uh, Lord, uh, we open our hearts to you because as we sang, we we accept that you have predestined to conform us to your image and as we think about our role and our calling as husbands, Lord, we, we want to walk worthy of that calling. We want to be yielded to you. And uh, we want to expose ourselves to whatever you need to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> what I want us to start off with is the fact that marriage is a calling. It's a calling... Uh, of God to a man and a woman. Now, despite what the courts in California say, it's very specific throughout the scripture. It's always between a man and a woman. I mean, uh, Massachusetts, now California. Uh, they, they don't even understand gender specific. This is how intelligent they've become. Uh, there was a, a, a ruling in California that... that a person doesn't know their gender until they're 13. <laughs> this is true. Now, we understand from a sociological point of view, gender is different than sex. Now, our, our perspective is we'd say, well, your gender is related to your sex. But what they're redefining sociologically is that your gender isn't determined until you've come into puberty. And why are they doing that? Because they're trying to re-engineer the way people think about sexuality, so that you can say, well, you know, I'm sexually a male, but I'm gender confused. Which, come on, yeah, we just don't need to be that smart. We can go back and say, you know, we're, we, we don't need to recreate things. But let's look at what the scripture says. Uh, the scripture says that it's marriage is a calling. You know, and, and the reason I'm going to emphasize that is it's, that's what the scripture says, that marriage is a calling. But even in Christianity, sometimes we don't think of it as a calling. We just think, you know, we met, we fell in love, and uh, we got married, and we made a commitment to God. But I want us to look at the scripture a little more detail, because God kind of illuminated my mind about it. That we, we think of it as, I guess I would have described it as, it's a covenant between us in the eyes of God. But if you read the scripture, it's, it's, it's much more than that. You see, he said that you're no longer two, but you're one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, God is the one that joins the couple together. God is the one that joins the man and the woman together. He, um, he is the one who unites us. And if you think about it, that's an amazing truth. The, the world doesn't consider marriage... Uh, uh, consider the marriage relationship as an act of God. They, they might see it as something that God uh, oversees or, or um, 
puts his blessings on, but they don't see it as something that God brings together. They view marriage as an act of man in the sight of God, but the reality is, is that marriage is a calling of God, and God is the one who unites us together. So, like I said, if you're divorced and remarried, I don't want you to live in guilt and condemnation. That's not what this message is about. Um, and I don't believe that God does either. I, I thank God that he's merciful and, and gracious and compassionate to us in all of our trials. I've listened to people uh, in, the, in, in just getting a church started who've been through such horrendous things and um, how God brings healing into them. But it doesn't change the truth that even if you remarry, that God's uniting us together. And you say, well, how does God work it all out? You know, I don't know. There's just something I just don't know. I, I, I don't want to be dogmatic on it. Um, I just want you to walk and let Christ manifest and live his life through you. But wherever you are today, we need to understand this is a serious thing. I, I was counseling a, a friend in Hawaii when, when we were... Uh, we'd come to Hawaii, and we worked with the church there whenever we were home. And then one of these guys came to me, and he, he came to me, and he said, Pastor Tim, can you do some counseling with me? And I said, yeah, let's go. And you got to understand, Hawaii, you think California's bad, but Hawaii's worse. I, I mean, there's such a casual approach to life, you know. And he was like, he had just gotten married, and um, it was kind of a nice thing. And before he got married, he asked the pastor of the church, he asked me, and we all said, don't do it. I mean, if you're asking me, I'm going to tell you, don't do it. You don't know her well enough. You haven't, you know, there, there hasn't been time for you to really understand each other. So, of course, he took our advice and he married her. And then about two months later, he's asking for counseling. And he's sitting there one day, we're having lunch, and he's like, I, I just, I married the wrong person. I did it too quick. I said, Irrelevant. And he's like, you know, well, but I just made a huge mistake. And I said, irrelevant. You know, that's why people don't come to me for repetitive counseling. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know, you know, some people are gifted counselors, and I know I'm not. You know, I'm just like, you know, I don't know what you want me to say. Um, you don't understand her, and she's different than you thought. And it doesn't really matter anymore. He goes, but this was a mistake. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's a mute point. It just doesn't matter. And he was getting a little frustrated with me. I'm, I'm saying, listen, I don't understand how it all works together. All I know is that the scripture says that when you're married, you have entered into a calling. And it doesn't matter whether you understand her or she's different. She probably feels the same way about you. You have a divine calling and the issue is are you going to walk worthy of this calling he has a calling for us as men and if we will follow his will it will lead to a wholesome marriage when god unites a man and a woman in marriage it's for both their good and their sanctification it may have to endure some difficult tests but the union itself is meant to last now, being a husband is primarily about a man's relationship to God. And the reason I'm saying that may seem obvious because I think most people think that, they're, that, they're, that the husband is primarily a relationship with their wife. But if you do that, you're, you're bound up in circumstances. And what I want us to see is that if we're going to walk worthy of our calling as husbands, we have to realize it's primarily our relationship 
not with our spouse, but our relationship with God. Because the marriage relationship is a calling from God. We, we, we read this verse last night, but let's read it again. 2 Timothy um, chapter number 1, verse 9. He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You know, I was listening to the, the, the testimony in like four years, and I couldn't get it. Well, you know, I think it's funny. I grew up in a Catholic home, and I, a very strict Catholic home. He was a, what we called nominal, uh, you know, uh, I was in a very devout Catholic home. I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. I never hung out with heathen. Um, all my friends were Catholic. That's all I knew until I went to university. And I mean, I remember I had people witnessing to me, and I just, it, it, it wasn't even that I didn't want the light to go on. I, I had the light, I thought, you know. But when God opens the mind... All of a sudden, what wasn't clear before. And why doesn't God do it here and there? I don't understand the whole dynamic of it. Because I'm just way too small to understand an infinite God and how he works. But when you read the scripture, what does it say? Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our work, but according to his own purposes and grace. So the issue for you and I today, as we start to look at this thing, and it doesn't matter if you've been, you're not married, been married a couple of years, or if you've been married 30 years, is, is am I going to look at this marriage as a divine calling that works according to his purposes and grace? Because it was given to us in Jesus before time began. You know, our perspective is it happened at this point, but... But really, God had it all laid out. So let's step back before we look in more details our role as, uh, as husbands and look at our calling. Who saved us? Talk to me. God. God saved us. God the Son saves us as a part of the divine will of God the Father. And not only has he saved us, but he's also, as Scripture says, he's called us. You know, what I wanted you to get last night and take a minute to emphasize it again this morning is you have a divine calling on your life. And it has nothing to do with your career. But your vocation is a divine calling. Um, that that we're, we're sons of God. To be a child of God is a divine calling. And the amazing thing, one of the scriptures we looked at last night, it's an irrevocable act. God decided, he willed it, and it's an irrevocable act of God. It establishes a special res- relationship that has specific responsibilities. It has privileges. It has promises. And it provides hope for the future. It's a calling of which we are admonished to walk worthy of. See, so often we, we kind of have in our minds that there is the secular parts of life and there's the sacred parts of life. Right? Well, this is, this is secular and this is sacred. But if you really understand it, there is no secular part of your life. Everything you do is sacred. I don't care if you're a trash man. I mean, if you drive a trash truck, it's sacred. You say, well, how can that be? 
It's part of how God wants to manifest his character in the world through you. It's honorable. It's sacred because everything we do, remember the scripture, we say these things, but we don't really think about what we're saying. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever else we do, we do for the honor and glory of God. Why? Because it's a part of our divine calling to manage or to bring and to bear the image of Christ to the world. So there's just one consistent person. It's me everywhere I am. And it's the indwelling life of God manifesting himself. You might be thinking of a calling or something that happens like, okay, that happens to missionaries. Missionaries get called. And people ask me all the time, uh, you know, when did you get the call? Um, And, you know, my situation is a little vague, you know. I remember I, I was in business and my goal in life was to be a millionaire. And even after I became a believer, I just thought my part in the kingdom was to make money, to give generously, and to fund the kingdom. And you know what? I believe God calls certain people to do that. He doesn't call people to get rich and to live narcissistic lives. He may have given you an ability to make money, to give you a career and an intellect, but it's all for the kingdom. That may be your party. And, and I was sitting in, in a church meeting, and there was an evangelist, and he was preaching about one thing, but Holy Spirit was div- working in me to surrender my life to full-time service. And I mean full-time service only in the sense that I was going to have an occupational change, where I was going to leave finance and, and learn to teach and to share the gospel with people. My vocation didn't change. Because if I had understood my vocation, my vocation from day one was to love God and to love people. That was my calling, but there was a specific task that God had me to do. And so, I mean, I had before many times people say to me, well, when are you going to go in the ministry? And I'm like, no, 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 God loves me. (laughs) You know, and the reason was ministry at those times... My experience was that people in the ministry were miserable. Just being honest. And, and I had been at Berean, if you guys don't remember, I, I, I was, uh, you know, I was like you guys. I was this young, uh, you know, pumped up business guy, man. I was going down into the city. I was making money. It was all, you know, that's what it was. Had a little family, make some money. And uh, that was my intent, just how, you know, make some more money, give some more money, do, you know, that was my thing. What, and, and when I went to Southern California, went to a church, and, I, and there was a big church, a big staff, and I saw these guys, and I'm like, ooh, you know, these, these people are not happy people. I, had, I wanted nothing to do with it, and I resisted that specific calling of God in my life because I, what I saw. When I finally surrendered, I, I you know... It was worse than I had imagined. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. There was times uh, I left business. I went in the ministry. You know, there's a large staff. And I, I was like, man, I, I'm... Because I had used to think, you know, if I could just work with Christians all day, it would be wonderful. Because I was out there slamming it in the world, you know. And I thought, man, if I could work with Christians, they'd be honest and ethical and... <laughs> All of this competition would go away. and Well, what I discovered was, wow, it's worse. Some of the backstabbing was worse. Some, you know, and uh, I, I was like about two weeks into it, I, I was like, ooh, well, I made a big mistake. I made a big mistake. And, 
but I, part of that was just growing and learning what the real motivation for Christian service is about and learning to live. Part God was using it. So there is that specific calling. And when God called me to go to Thailand, I, I knew he wanted me to go there. Uh, pastor can give you a testimony how he knew God was working and directing his life and to, and to bring. But, but really, we think about this calling. It's not as mystical as you think. God prepares you, he brings you, he puts you in the place that he wants you to do, and if he wants you to do or perform a specific task, he'll bring it all together for you to know that. You don't have to wonder. Because you do have a calling on your life right now, and that's to love him and to love people. That's your divine calling. It's never going to change. If he has a specific task or he has a specific office for you to hold, he's going to bring it all together so you will know. But your calling isn't going to change. Because the, Paul, the, the calling is to a person. And the first and primary calling that each of us have is to the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the full manifestation. Like we, we talk about grace and, and we get trapped and we start talking about grace as a theological concept and mercy as a theological concept. But I want you to, to break all that down and realize it's a person. First and foremost, grace is a person. His name is Jesus. Truth is first and foremost a person. And our calling is to that person, Jesus. He's calling us for, the, for, for his purposes. If you see the scripture, he says for his purposes and for his will. It, it, that's the eternal intention of God. So, before we go on, we've got to just say, are we going to surrender ourselves to realizing that we have a divine vocation, a calling from God, and it really doesn't have anything to do with us? And it's not what I like or don't like, what's comfortable or uncomfortable. Because these are the things that, that, that separate us. And that get us distracted. You know, I mean, I, I remember years ago, I was in a church and we were having, it was a Sunday night service, and so they had a little question and answer time. And someone says, well, do you like living in Thailand? I mean, I was stumped. It was this kid asking me this question. I was like, you know, I have to have an intelligent response. And I finally just said, you know, I, I never considered it. Because, you know, missionaries are supposed to say they like it, and, you know, it's home, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just said, you know, I'm just, I don't know. I, I, I just have never stopped to think of it. it. It really doesn't have anything to do with anything. I, I guess so. It's not like I don't like it, but there's things I like, and there's things I don't like. Right now, I'm, I, I'm living in Southern California. The things I like, I like all the golf courses. The things I don't like, I can't afford to golf on them. <laughs> You know, uh, eight months of the year, the weather's beautiful. It's never cold like this. It's beautiful. It's comfortable. Four months of the year, it's on the verge of hell. It's 116 degrees. You know, um, I, I don't like that part of it. Uh, what does liking it have to do with anything? If you were, you were in the Air Force, right? How long were you in the Air Force? 20 years. So, not very long, but long enough to learn a few things. And... and where were you based? You were up at Travis for a while. In Idaho, you were at Mountain Home. 
Mountain Home. And then where else did you go? You were in Japan? Philippines? That's it? Not bad. That's Air Force, so they're a lot nicer to their people. And, and like when, you know, every so often they would just send you a survey and say, do you like it here in Idaho? Would you like to stay here? And then... And, 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 but they asked you whether you liked it once, once the day you signed up. And, but you, you see what I'm saying? What am, I, what am I trying to get at? It doesn't really matter whether you like it. It's not really the consideration. Sure, you like certain places more than you like other places, but it doesn't really matter. Because when you're in the military, you're serving someone else's purposes and will. But this is what Christians don't understand. We are here to serve the purposes and will of our Father, not what we like. And it doesn't have anything to do with our preferences. One thing that helping start a church in America has taught me and is nauseating to me is everybody's preferences, as though that was important. Where did we get the idea that our preferences were important? It has nothing to do with us fulfilling and walking worthwhile or worthily of this divine vocation that God has given us to love him and to love people. You see, we've been called by God and we need to let this calling affect every aspect of our lives. Why people say, well, why do you, it's part of my calling. Do you remember last night we, we looked at the passage in Romans and uh, Romans eleven twenty nine says, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So the New King James translates it, irrevocable. I, I like it a little better. You know, I don't mean to offend you if you, if you only read the King James. I like the New King James because uh, part of the way it explains is the idea of repentance is, uh, I hope I didn't sniff on the landmine there, but... Um, <laughs> I like the way it's done because repentance is, you know, has a, a connotation of relating to sin and, and turning from it. So uh, God never has to do that. So I, I like the idea they translate irrevocable because it conveys the, the ens, essence of it. When God called you, he never changes his mind. And I had a pastor tell me, I used this uh, verse to tell me why he should be able to remain a pastor after he had multiple affairs. And I had another pastor tell me that after he, he, you know, he could tell you a lie, it was okay, because he had a calling from God that was without repentance. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about an office. It's not talking about a specific office or task. It's talking about that when God calls you to save you, he has a divine will and purpose and it never changes. It doesn't have anything to do with an office. Now, am I qualified to be a missionary pastor? I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think so. Most of the time, I'm not. I read through those qualifications, and I'm, I'm baffled. Most of the time, I have the gift of hospitality. Most of the time. But sometimes, I just don't. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> what, are you ever like that? Where you just don't want someone to knock on your door? Yeah. I am. Sometimes, I get tired. 
Sometimes I'm just tired. Sometimes people wear me out, and I'm just like, no more. That's all I can take, you know. Well, I'm disqualified, I guess. You know, I mean, we lock in on certain things. We lock on on, on the on on certain a- sexual aspects. But I'm like, you know, my point is is just this: What's your calling? Uh, offices, titles—they they aren't important to me. What's important to me is that I fulfill. I walk worthy of this calling, and it affects every relationship in my life. God, He never changes His mind. You see, the relationships can change. You find that sometimes your friends change. Your relationships can change, but there's one that God has given that can't change, and it has something to do with birth. You know, you look at it in a family. I mean, I, I'm blessed with four children, and we have a foster daughter. And, and you know, the reality is sometimes my kids, they, they, they're doing great, and sometimes they're doing not so great. Um, sometimes they love me, sometimes they, they're baffled by me, sometimes they're frustrated with me, sometimes they don't understand me. I, I hope they never get to the point where they hate me, but they may secretly have hated me at some point, uh, especially when they were 13, um, which is a very special period in, in some people's lives, you know, um, especially my daughters, you know, they're like, well, 13, you know, they're like, you know, I was the Antichrist. I was the manifestation of everything that was evil in their mind, you know, uh, mostly because I didn't want them to do the things that they wanted to do. Um, you go through all of those things, but, you know, the reality is they never quit being my daughters. They never quit being my sons. And, and I remember my youngest, Katie, she's, she's 20. She's, she's a hoot. Um, she never met a rule she didn't want to break. She got that from her dad. Um, it wasn't from her mom. It was her dad. She never met a rule that she didn't want to break. And her philosophy growing through life was this, and she'll tell you, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. <laughs> I'm like, what were you thinking? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, um, she, but... You know, I, I'd sit there and shake my head. Well, what were you thinking? And, and that's a stupid question for a parent to ask. They weren't thinking. If they'd been thinking, they wouldn't have done it. So why do we ask stupid questions? The, the, the point is, no matter what happens, she's my daughter. And I remember telling her, I said, Katie, my responsibility is to protect you. I have this responsibility as a dad to protect you. And, and I was talking about it one time. And, you know, I say, this is the father's responsibility. You may not like it. It may get you comfortable. It may interfere with some of the things that you want to do. But that's my, my responsibility uh, to be protected. And she said, even when I don't want to be protected. And I'm like, especially when you don't want to be protected. <laughs> Why is she my daughter? Because she's my daughter. She's birth. It never is going to change. And in human relationships, you can lose those. They can be broken. The, the fellowship can be broken, but you can't change the relationship. It was birthed. Well, here's a beautiful thing about God is that in his son, he took the full wrath, the full punishment, the full judgment of all of our failures, sins, weaknesses, so that we would never have a hindrance in being able to walk in relationship with him. That's, that's the foundation of it all, birth establishes a relationship between parents and children that can't be revoked. And we, and we must recognize that God has called us to earthly relationships that express our relationship with God. 
You see, so our relationship with our spouse is ordained by God to reflect our relationship with God. Does that make sense to you? Because sometimes we have a dichotomy there. But the relationship we have with God is, a, is going to reflect on the relationship that we have with our spouse. One affects the other. You see, uh, let's talk about our identity. Um, what, what, what do I mean when, I'm, I'm, when I say walking worthy of our calling as husbands? That we, that we recognize that we have a responsibility to walk worthy as husbands, and we do this by loving our wife as Jesus loved his church. Yeah. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart about how you might encourage one another as you live in this community called Berean Baptist Church. How you can encourage one another um, and learn from one another about this holy calling that you have on your life. Because you need each other. You know, um, we tend to be private people, and we don't, you know, men are less likely to open up and, and vent and talk about things as, as women are, but we need it because we often think that we're the only ones. And you need to learn and, and to talk, and you need each other uh, in this journey. Your identity as a husband, first and foremost, is that you are a son of the living God. If you're married, I want you to write down a statement. If you still have your um, golf pencils, that was really nice to provide golf pencils. Even though we don't get to golf much, but uh, at least we have the pencils. Um, I want you to write this statement if you're married. If you aren't married and would like to be at some point, you can leave it blank. <laughs> don't get a tattoo, you know. I saw this, this, this commercial, and uh, I was watching this commercial the other day, and, it, and it's, I, I don't even know what the commercial is about, but it's like this girl's coming in, oh, you're, and the doctor's like, you're getting married to Mike. She goes, no. I guess she had a tattoo, and it was like about laser removal of tattoos. And I'm like, yeah, you need to be very careful. Um, but don't necessarily fill in a name here yet if you don't have the commitment. Um, God has called me to be the husband of for life. For me, it's God has called me to be the husband of Vanessa for life. And I, I want you to just kind of repeat it to yourself five, ten times, uh, as often as you need. God has called me. This is part of what it means to walk worthy as a husband. God has called me to be the husband of, for me, Vanessa, for life. It's for life. It's for life. Our growth as the sons of God is directly related to our growth as husbands who express the image of God. I'll be honest with you. I'm not proud of it. I think for most of my marriage, I was a standard bearer. I was a standard bearer to my children. I was a standard bearer to my wife. I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. I, I picked up things that I learned, and I, I, 
I missed it. And in many respects, I, I hurt my wife and my children because I was a standard bearer. I put expectations on them that, that nobody could meet. Um, I couldn't meet. And there was, there was a certain amount of depth in that relationship. And I have tried to be transparent with you and share with you, you know, well, when I'm asking, what adjective would she choose to define me? So I want to ask you to do this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your relationship with your wife? On a scale of 1 to 10, you, you write this down in your notes. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your relationship with your wife? 10 being perfect, 1 being not perfect, <laughs> completely not perfect. <laughs> How would you relate your relationship with your wife? Think about it. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your relationship with your wife? You got it? Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would your wife rate your relationship with her? On a scale of 1 to 10, how would your wife rate your relationship with her? Okay, third. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would God rate your relationship to your wife? On a scale of 1 to 10, how would, your, how would God rate your relationship with your wife? Now, this is just for you. If you want to share it with your wife later, that's fine. If you don't want to share it with anybody, that's fine. But it's an exercise I want us to do to help us kind of think through the process. Did your score go down? Right, right. I mean, I, you don't. We're not going to have testimonies about this, so you don't have to get up and worry about it. But uh, did your score go down gradually? Now, I think that's normal because perspective changes everything. I mean, really, when you think about it, uh, perspective changes uh, how we look at things. Now, once again, this isn't an exercise for shame. This isn't about, oh, you know, I, I need you to be shamed. Because shame doesn't produce what God wants to produce in your life. This is, that's not what this is about. What this is about is us allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal to us areas in which we're not expressing the image of God. And, and, and shame and guilt will leave us in the place where we feel guilty and we feel shame, but it doesn't transform the heart. And Jesus is all about transforming the heart. And transforming our experience. It's not about making us feel guilty about it. So, listen. Um, God gives grace to the humble, right? And he gives understanding to our needs. And, and, and when we see that we're not where we need to be or he desires for us to be, it's an opportunity of us to, uh, to pray to yield ourselves to him so that he can further work and to trust him to bring healing where need, healing needs to take place. 
so that he can fully express his life through us. And how is this different than the standard bearer? It's just completely different. You see, the standard bearer has all kinds of things that are up there. There's expectations. There's rules. There's regulations. There's explanations. You know, as a standard bearer, I can say, well, you know, uh, I'm doing the right things, whether or not she perceives it or feels it or experiences it. I can say, listen, I did these things. I've got these. I did one through ten. You know, and I think I might have shared with you before, you know, you have a list of 10 things that make a good husband. And you say, what's wrong with this woman? I did. I checked off the list one through 10. I did all these 10 things. Is that what she wants? No. What does she want? She wants relationship. She doesn't want you to do the right things because of the right things to do. She wants you to do them because it's an act of love and intimacy for her. You know, we, we all know that women are very different than men. And I, I was joking with somebody last night. I said, my, my, my oldest son, Ryan, he's been dating a girl for about two years. And, and she's a wonderful girl. You know, we, we, we love her. We try not to say it too much because we're afraid that if, if he thinks that we like her, there must be something wrong with her. But uh, <laughs> that's what it seems like sometimes as a parent, you know. But uh, you're like, if my dad likes you, there's something wrong with you, you know. Um, <clears throat> But uh, he's like, you know, Dad, I don't know. Because I'm like, you know, when are you going to get engaged? You know, I mean, you either know. He goes, well, you know, I don't want to take the next step until I really understand her. (laughs) I said, son, I hope you're content living a celibate life. Um. I have another message. We're going to talk about that later. Um, but, but let's think about it. Our primary responsibility as husbands, called to walk worthy, is to express the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to our wives. That's our primary responsibility, is to manifest the image of God. If you live an old covenant law system, and what you are is Moses to your wife. It's all expectations, and you become a minister of the old covenant, and you minister death to your wife. And you may be saying, but listen, I fulfilled all of the commandments of Moses. And she's dead. Why? Because the old covenant, the Old Testament laws, were there for one purpose, and it wasn't to make you holy. The great misconception in in fundamentalism today is that the, the law is there to make us holy. It isn't. The law is there to destroy us, to show us there's nothing good in us. There's no capacity to to be redeemed or transformed. It it serves its purpose well. And in every relationship where you minister the law, you will always minister death. Remember, we have a holy calling to make the love and the life of Christ a reality to our wives. We're to, there to bear our, uh, the image of God to let his life shine through us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife. Yeah, baby. Right? I'm sorry I didn't get an amen out of that one. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> right? 
The, the, the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And we're going to make sure that the, the wives get an edited copy of this CD where that's, that's emphasized. We're the head. Now, we want our wives to hear this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, my wife, she likes to put, like, scripture verses in frames around the house. But she never had this one there. Uh, you know. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get me a little, a little frame with a little, you know, a little flowery embroidery with this verse in there. Yeah, woman. Look at that one right there. Put that one on the refrigerator. Um, now, we think like that because we don't know what it means to be the head. We have a totally secular view of what it means to be the head. Because in our mind, we think, man, the head, that's the caveman thing, you know? You grab her by the back of the hair and drag her out of the cave, you know, and say, you know, cook dinner, do this, do that, because I'm the head, I'm the boss, I'm the man, I wear the pants in this family. I wear the pants she tells me to wear. But I do wear the pants, right? But to be the head is to be the one with the responsibility. See, so we, we like talking about, you know, this stuff, like husbands, you know, you're the head and wives, you submit. But I propose to you that if you have to tell your wife to submit, you have already lost the battle. Is she supposed to submit? Yes. But it's really secondary, because who's the head? The husband. So as the head, who has the greatest responsibility? And there's a reason you have the responsibility. Because you're wired to fulfill that responsibility. And when the woman becomes the head, it always goes awry. Because they're not wired for that. It doesn't have anything to do with equality. It has nothing to do with value. It's the way God designs us. And he designs us different to fulfill his purpose and to manifest his image. He's saying you're the head. That means you're the one who's responsible. So don't talk to, to your wife about submitting until you have fulfilled your responsibility to her. Do you... Uh, you see, let, let me back up. Christ is the head of the church. We all agree. Right? And how did Christ act towards the church? He is the... So the scripture says, the savior of the body. Do you see yourself as the savior of your wife? Now, for clarification, I'm not talking about Jesus was the savior and he saved us of our sin from the power and penalty. That's not the same kind of savior we're talking about here. What does it mean to be a savior? A savior is a deliverer, he's a protector, and he's a preserver. Deliverer, protector, and preserver. Jesus has delivered his bride from sin's power, sin's penalty. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, it's presence yet to come. Uh, you don't save your wife from the penalty and power of sin, but you are to be her deliverer, her protector, and her preserver. We, are husbands, are responsible for protecting and delivering our wives from circumstances, situations, and relationships that would be destructive them to them physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Nobody likes this? 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26, continuing on. He says, And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the working of water by the word. So he's saying here, you, you, you're there to preserve, protect. And, then, and he goes on, and he says, now love your wife. And every husband desires, I think, for his wife to look at him with respect. Um, and every wife desires to be loved by her husband. But because we're so different, we interpret these things very differently. A man, most men, describe love with the words of respect. Women describe love in a much different way. A woman defines love by intimacy. Now, it's just us men, so I'm going to be straight up. Women have sex in order to obtain intimacy. Men are intimate in order to have sex. (laughs) It's just the truth. You know, my wife will say, well, how are you feeling about that? And I'm like, it's pressure. Because honestly, most of the time, I'm not thinking about how I feel about something. My brain is just, I'm a very linear person. I'm thinking about processes and the logic of and trying to figure something out you know i'll go nuts trying to figure something out what's how did this come to this and she's like well how, but how do you feel well i i guess i feel very angry and frustrated <laughs> you know um you know i have to tell you man it, I don't know about your wives. I, I think there's a generalities of it, and, and there's always exceptions, I guess. But my wife's brain is like a, a, a bundle of wires where everything is connected to everything. I mean, she's always thinking about something, and everything is related to everything else. Me... When we have a conversation, I want us to talk about one thing and only one thing at a time. Because I don't understand, like, one minute we're talking about one thing, and then she's off about something else. I'm still kind of like in this little box where we're talking about the kids. And then she's talking about, but in her mind, everything is kind of interrelated, interconnected. And, 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 and sometimes I think about nothing. You know, I mean, she'll sit, she'll, we'll be sitting there and, and she'll say, what are you thinking about? I'm like, nothing. And she's like, no, really, really, what are you thinking about? I'm like, no, really, nothing. She's like, no, tell me what you're really thinking about. I'm like, no, really, right now I'm trying to think about if I was thinking about something, but I can't think about anything. And, and I think that Vanessa has never had that experience where she thought about nothing. I mean, I'll sit there and, you know, we usually pray together before we go to bed. And she'll, I'll, I'll sit or see her laying there and I can just see the electrodes going. You know. And me, I'm just like, oh, 
Um, we're uniquely designed differently, but we need to understand, okay, what does love look like? Because we came to this great frustration, and, and uh, a friend of mine was, we were, Vanessa and I were going through just some stuff, and I was just trying to, you know, he's like, well, do you love her? And I said, well, of course I do. And he said, well, do you think she would think you love her? Well, why wouldn't she? I work hard, I'm faithful, and I listen all of the things out. He goes, he goes, I dare you, go ask her what love looks like to her. And we did. We went and we got in a quiet place. We had some time together. And I said, describe what love looks like to you. Freak me out what that woman described it as. <laughs> it was completely different than how I would have described it. And I came to this conclusion that, see, that, that part of the frustration we have in our marriage is that I'm trying to love her like I would want to be loved. And she's trying to love me like she wanted to be loved. And, and to me, it wasn't all about emotions and intimacy. I, that, that wasn't nearly as important to me. And so if we're going to love our wives like Christ loves the church, we've got to just take a whole different approach to things. You see, <clears throat> your wife wants to be loved by you more than anything else. Uh, we just need to understand how our wives understand love. So I want to ask you, are you willing to ask your wife what love looks like to her? Now, if you've been married just a short time, you may think, well, that's pertinent. But this is more pertinent if you've been married 30 years. I mean, for those of us who've been married a long time, it's, it's probably more important. Because we get entrenched into ruts and habits. And we just make assumptions. And... Now, for you young guys with a young family, you need to ask her. But I'm, I, I'm telling you now, you need to prepare. And if you've been married 30 or 40 years, you need to sit on your hands, shut your mouth, and listen. Don't argue with her. Because my tendency would be, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. Where's the logic in that one? Yeah, there, there may be no logic in it at all, but that isn't the point, really, is it? it? When God loves us, how does he love us? Unconditionally, sacrificially, selflessly, eternally. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling as husbands, and we've got to just come straight up and say, you know, let's just be at least be honest and say, you know, really, I'm too narcissistic and self-centered. Uh, I have no intention of obeying God in this issue. Or I'm willing to ask her, what does love look like to you? And then commit myself to loving her the way she needs to be loved. And to give myself selflessly and sacrificially. Why? Because I'm the head. And the head isn't about telling everybody what to do. The head is the one who gives himself sacrificially for the benefit of others. He has the greater responsibility. I mean, this is, it's a heavy weight. But this is a part and core to our divine calling. 
you can say, well, you know, I, I'm nice to everybody you know, else, but it, it, it's meaningless. How, did he, how does he love the church? He, he says, love your wife as he loves his church. He gave himself for her benefit. Everything the church has, has, it has because it's in Christ. Because he was willing to lay everything down. He, and he was willing to lay his life down to the exclusion of all others. How does a husband love his wife? He reserves his heart, soul, and body for his wife to the exclusion of all others. And that's the expression of God's love. You know, we talk about it. I, I put it in vows now. I'm going to love to the exclusion of all others. Your wife should get the same special treatment from you that Jesus gives to his church. Now, most of us are pretty good in the dating stage of, of doing this, right? You know, we open the door, we're thoughtful, we buy flowers. I mean, the whole flower thing, I never got that, right? I mean, but women are trippy about that stuff. They love that stuff. I walked into to a Ralph's store the other day, and they had this little flower section, and my wife loves tulips. Why? I don't know. But she loves tulips. And they had this thing of tulips in there. It was $5.99. I'm like, man, I can afford that. Uh, of course, I ripped the price tag off. I wanted to think there were more. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I used to joke, you know, I'd stop by a cemetery on the way to the date to, to get her some flowers. <laughs> it don't make sense to spend money on that stuff. But um, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> They love that stuff. Why? Because to me, I'm like, why would you spend all that money on something that's just going to die in a few days? It just, why? Because it makes them feel special. So after we get married, we quit doing that stuff. We quit opening the door. We quit calling during the day. When you were long distance, did you call regularly? And you could talk on the phone for how long? Hour? When was the last time you talked to your wife on the phone for an hour? See, this is confusing. We, we, we get all frustrated and we say, well, how can you understand this woman? She's ever-changing. But she's sitting there going, but he used to be able to listen to me for an hour on the phone. And now when I call him, he says, I got to go. <laughs> we used to be able to talk for an hour and listen to her for an hour for nothing more than just to listen to her talk. And now it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, could you get to the point? And I caught myself doing it the other day. You know, I was driving up here. I had a list of things I needed to get done. I asked my wife to take care of some things for me since I was going to be up here. And I said, and she's like just talking and how are you doing? How are you feeling? And, and I'm like, I said, babe, I need you to get off the phone and get to that, those things to do because I know you're going to tell me you didn't have time. And then I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because me, it's all about productivity, right? How do I get the most done in one day? But, but uh, she's not a machine. You, you see what I'm saying? So we enter in this relationship and we do all of these things and then we get married and we don't do any of those things and we wonder why they're not as intimate as they used to be. They're, they're not as sensitive as they used to be and why they're moody. Because they don't feel like the object of love. 
Christ loved his church with an agape love. So she, she deserves a special treatment that Jesus gave to his church, and that means you don't give up. You, this means that you don't give to other women what you give to her. And, and I'm just going to hammer this thing a little bit because it's such a danger point for us. Because it's easy to get involved in relationships with women, whether at church or at work, and, and you're, you're nicer to them and more patient with them. My, my wife nailed me on that, this a couple of times. She's like, she's like, well, you're so much more patient with these other people than, I, than you are with me. And I'm like, no, I, I have to be with them. Because I have an image to preserve. You already know that image is shattered with me. <laughs> uh, now, but doesn't she have a point? Now, the point isn't that I should be impatient with everybody. <laughs> that, that's not her point. <laughs> you know, All right, I'll be impatient with everybody. <laughs> Equality will spread. Uh, the point really is, is, you know, sometimes we're, as standard bearers, more worried about our image and the image that we portray to other people than we are about manifesting the image of God. And, and we have all of these absolute standards that everyone must uh, follow in order to be accepted, but we're full of hypocrisy in our private lives. You see, this agape love of God that he has for his church uh, was for his church. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. It works always for the benefit of the body. We were talking about it this morning before breakfast that even God permits and brings into our lives even difficult, painful things, but always for our benefit. Everything that God's doing for us is for our benefit. It's for our good. Even when he chastises us, he does it as an expression of his love for us. It's never an act of frustration. It's never, we're not under his wrath simply because the son did a perfect job at satisfying it. So, uh, I'm not saying that chastisement can't be painful. I, I know from personal experience it can be quite painful. But its motive is different. And he, that's what he does for us. So he's saying, listen, you, you need to give yourself to, the exclusion, to her to the exclusion of others and, and not give to any other person what, you would, what you're giving to her. Um, agape love doesn't look to personal cost. You agape her just as God agapes you. And you might be saying, well, uh, I don't have that kind of love. And that's okay, because the reality is you can't love her like that. But what the foundation that we're laying down in John 15 and then really in Galatians 2.20 is that you don't need to have that kind of love because you have him who is that love in you. And when you find yourself and you say, man, my patience is exhausted, God's revealing that to you so he can say, wait, I have patience for you. I have all the patience she needs, and it's in me. Will you let it flow? 
You have little kids and you, you just you feel exhausted and you don't have the patience. You say, it's okay to say, listen, I don't have any patience. He says, that's good because I have all the patience those kids need. Will you let me live through you? But to let God live through you, you have to let the standard fall and think only of bearing the image of God. And there's, there's times when you're going to say, listen, I just don't have that kind of love for my wife. I, I, I tell people this, I, that, that if marriage does nothing else for you, it will show you how selfish you are. I mean, you don't enter into it, but listen, we are selfish people. I'm selfish. I'm not proud of it, but it, gosh, I, just, it's, I love life being about me. I mean, really, you know, I love it. I mean, when life works where it's just all about me, it's just fun. It's great. But that's not where God has called us to. And life doesn't have that much fulfilling and, and meaning. He said, well, listen, when, it, when, you, when you run out, that's okay. Because that's when God can manifest his image through you. And that's where healing and restoration and transformation take place. Not when we... Because we come to the point where we say, I just gave everything I had to give, and there's just nothing left to give. But if that's where we stop, then there's, that's the end. But that's really the point where we need to let Jesus start manifesting his image in us. And so we love our wives like he loves the church. And it's always going to be evidence through your sacrificial service. And this is where you're going to have the battle with your flesh. Because we want to be served. We, we do. We, we want to be served. And the reality is, that's not agape. Agape is selfless, sacrificial love, working for the benefit of others at no cost. No, no, no reservation about the cost to us. You say, well, that's impossible. Well, it's humanly impossible. But that's what God delights to do because then it's his life in us and through us. So you love your wife, then you sanctify your wife. I didn't realize how long I had been going, I'm sorry. Jesus gave himself for his bride to sanctify her. And, and all I want to talk about this is the, the, the word sanctify means to set apart. And what you're saying is that I'm setting her apart and, and I'm setting her apart from all others. Jesus gave his life so that we would be completely different, transformed. And one aspect of his sacrificial death was to secure us and to secure his bride to himself. So husbands, our responsibility is to give ourselves sacrificially for our wife so that she's set apart from every other. You can't lay down your life and still be selfish. So whenever we, when, when we find ourselves being selfish... It's, it's, it's a friendly reminder from the Holy Spirit to say, hey, wait a second, you haven't laid down your life. Are you willing to lay down your life? Um, see, I take all these things as positive admonitions from God. You know, Satan wants to beat you up. See what a failure you are? But to me, that's focusing on the wrong thing. It's just a reminder from God that I was bearing a standard instead of his image. And when he reveals my selfish, self-centered ways, he's saying, it's a reminder. Would you let me 
live through you? Will you lay down your life so that I can manifest my image through you? To sanctify her is to is for her to be treated more tenderly, more special than any other. Just like God does for the church. So you love your wife, you sanctify your wife, you cleanse your wife with the word. You see, cleansing comes from God's word. And the word cleanses the heart. It brings peace to the soul uh, and w- when it's applied to life. And you need to lead your wife according to God's word and you need to read God's word to her. You can't leave it to the thing. Why? Because you're the head. And you think, well, you know, and, and I've gotten in these traps where I just get so busy that, that I don't take time to read things to her and to remind her and to refresh her. And it always is evidence. Because her mind is so linked, you know, everything's linked. To, to me, it's not linked. I don't get how she gets a connection. You know, she can talk about her mother and her children and the economy and, and finances, and they can all be interrelated in the same conversation. So she needs me to remind her, to cleanse her mind with what's true. I have to stop and use the scripture to remind her of what's true about her. That her identity, her value, her worth comes from who she is in Christ, not what she does. That she doesn't need to have to worry about being in control or worry about the outcome of everything the children may possibly do and how that might reflect on her. But she's not going to come to that if, we don't, if I don't remind her of the truth. If I don't, you, we, we continue to lead our wives' lives to live free from the burdens that so commonly overwhelm them. And, and women will have burdens that men don't have just because of the way they think. No, she, she, my wife will worry about things that might possibly happen in the future. And I'm like, why are you worried about that? I mean, isn't, shouldn't we just worry about what's going on today? But she, she will anticipate things. And I have to remind her, listen, the evil of today is enough. You know, let's focus on it. We don't want that. And, and when I bring the scripture back to her and take the time to remind her, it changes it. It's like nourishing her, that, you, that we take time to care for her spiritually. And, and I think sometimes for us in ministry full time, and I, um, it's hard sometimes because we get, we get wore out just caring for everybody else. But, you know, in the end, it doesn't matter if you've nourished everybody in the body and you don't nourish your wife. Um, and so we need to take time. I, I want to encourage you. Nothing, no scripture verse that tells you you have to do this. But the best thing that you're going to do for every aspect of your life is pray with your wife before you go to bed. Now, I tease my wife. And she, she loves for us to pray together at night before we go to bed. But me, I, I, I love to go to bed early. You know, I, I just, I'm more of an early riser. She, she could stay up late, but, you know, we'll lay down there and pray. And then she'll just, I can hear it. Her mind just kind of unwinding as she prays. And uh, I always make her pray first. Um, and the reason I do this is because it tells me what's going on. Just listening to her. You know, maybe that's not what prayer is, but I, I listen to her so I can understand what's going on in her life. As she expresses it in prayer to God. And then when I pray, you know, I, I pray one-tenth of the time that she does usually. Um, 
because I'm not as verbal, you know. I, I figure God already knows the details, so I don't need to remind him. But, uh, you know, she's going to give him every detail of everything, and, and that's okay. That's how she's wired. But by praying with her, it shows that I care enough to listen to what her real concerns are. And, and it's an act of intimacy for her. It's not a religious function. It shows that I care enough to be concerned about her. And I just would encourage you to practice listening to her concerns and encouraging her through the word. And you can do that by praying. And then the, the next thing there was to cherish her. How do you determine the value of something? What's that guitar worth? Jones, what's that guitar worth? What's it worth? I didn't bring my blue book on. <laughs> well, what do you think it's worth? Huh? Hundred dollars? Does anybody have a hundred dollars? This this guitar this guitar is worth more than a hundred dollars. It's got knobs on it. <laughs> you, he said a hundred dollars, but how do we know it's worth a hundred dollars? I love it. That's great. Because he could have said it's worth a thousand dollars. Right? He could, he could have said that, that guitar is worth a thousand dollars. But how would we know? Exactly. How do you know what something's worth? By what somebody's willing to pay. Everything else is just talk. How do you know your worth with God? By what he was willing to pay. You see, your worth isn't established by what you do or how you feel. Your worth, your value is determined by what somebody was willing to pay for you. And God the Father thought you were worth his son to bring him to yourself. Now you may say, well, I'm not worth anything. I'm no good. I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm a... But Jesus laid down his whole entire life, the only begotten Son of God, because his Father said you were worth it to him. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because you have to cherish your wife the way Christ cherishes the church. And her value is going to be determined by what you're willing to pay. And I'm not talking about finances. Finances and buying things is a substitute for giving ourselves emotionally. I mean, the things that cost. Most guys would rather buy their wives a diamond than listen to her talk for an hour and a half about things that don't matter to them. You're laughing because you know it's true. You'd be like, could I just buy you something instead? Oh, wow, how long is this going to take? Because the Raider game's coming on, you know? Could we put this off till later? And what do we say? She's not worth anything to us. You say, well, that's not what I meant. No, that's exactly how she interprets it. The church, you know your value because of what Jesus is willing to pay. And he's saying, you are to bear the image, my image, to her. And you're going to show her worth and value by how you cherish her. He willingly suffered. He willingly endured shame for us. 
Now, this is a tough one because sometimes if your wife's making you feel shame, she's shaming you, embarrassing you, you may put up a big standard that says, I don't have to put up with this. But Jesus willingly endured shame to redeem us. And uh, he did it so that you might know and be convinced of his love. Listen, husbands, a wise husband realizes that he gives his wife special treatment and what she wants more than anything else is time. She wants the attention and care and uh, you can't give that to any other woman. So I'm going to ask, are you willing to suffer and endure shame for your wife with no expectations of return? Because if you do it just because you want to have a good sex life, then you're not doing it for the right motive. I mean, God doesn't do things for us so he can get something out of us. He does it because it's who he is. And sometimes us guys are a little devious. We do things because we want something. And they can sense it. So, we walk worthy as husbands involves, it involves its expression of God's love in life. And we love her like Christ loves the church. We sanctify her. That means we, 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 gotta really, we have a responsibility to protect her. <laughs> we sanctify her, we cleanse her, and we cherish her. And, 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 and it happens, and it never ends. My wife, you know, we're talking about something. She says, are, are you protecting me? I said, absolutely. Absolutely, I'm protecting you. Well, why? I'm like, because you just don't need to know. There's things I need to carry that you don't need to carry, and I'm going to protect you from people. Sometimes she doesn't like it because she wants to know the information. But I know what she can handle and what she can't handle, and that's my responsibility. And in all the ways that I failed, it's a reminder that the Holy Spirit says, okay, here, keep going. I'm sure we're at the end of 80 minutes. Well, we don't want to waste that two minutes. Um, you know, uh, I, I hope it doesn't seem too long. I, I probably over-prepared because you gave me a whole year. Probably next time, just call me the week before and say, can I do it? And uh, my messages will be a lot shorter. Um, <clears throat> it's a huge thing, loving your wife like Christ loves the church. But if you lay down the banner, the standard, and think about bearing the image, it changed your whole perspective on it. Well, God bless you, man. See you at lunch.